Open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Alleluia. The True God, One in Three and Three in One. O come, let us worship him. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is His also. It is His, and He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now Never shall be world without end. Amen. The true God, one in three and three in one. O come, let us worship him.
God is in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families. The God of Israel is he that giveth strength and power unto his people. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. But let the righteous be glad, let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, thou, O God, hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. God is in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families. The God of Israel is he that giveth strength and power unto his people. The Old Testament lesson for the eleventh Sunday after Trinity is written in the fourth chapter of Genesis, beginning at the first verse. The man knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, I have gotten a man with the Lord's help. Again she gave birth to Cain's brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. As time passed, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought some of the firstborn of his flock and of its fat. The Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he didn't respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry, and the expression on his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has the expression of your face fallen? If you do well, won't it be lifted up? If you don't do well, sin crouches at the door. Its desire is for you, but you are to rule over it. Cain said to Abel his brother, Let's go into the field. While they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Now you are cursed because of the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. From now on, when you till the ground, it won't yield its strength to you. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me out today from the surface of the ground. I will be hidden from your face, and I will be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever slays Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that anyone finding him would not strike him. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Thanks be to God. The epistle is written in the fifteenth chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians, beginning at the first verse. Now I declare to you, brothers, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold firmly the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over five hundred brothers at once, most of whom remain until now, but some have also fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
And last of all, as to the child born at the wrong time, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who is not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the assembly of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. His grace which was given to me was not futile, but I worked more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Thanks be to God. In God my heart greatly rejoiceth, and with my song will I praise him. Unto thee will I cry, O Lord my rock, be not silent to me. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry unto thee. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Alleluia, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling in all generations. Alleluia. The Holy Gospel is according to St. Luke, the 18th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Jesus also spoke this parable to a certain people who were convinced of their own righteousness and who despised all others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed to himself like this, God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of men, extortionists, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far away, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here ends the gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So says St. Paul in our epistle today. And it's interesting to hear St. Paul say this on the day that we also hear about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from our Lord. Because when Jesus describes the Pharisee, well, he's also in a way describing Paul. And when Jesus describes the tax collector, he is also describing Paul. At one point in his life, Paul was the Pharisee. At another, he was the tax collector. Not by profession, of course, but in his ability to look, not being able to look up to heaven, but still asking for mercy. So which one do you think Paul would rather be, the Pharisee or the tax collector? Which one would you rather be, the Pharisee or the tax collector? And most of you, most of us in our piety, would say, well, the tax collector, of course. That's who Jesus is pointing to. And that's the pious answer. That's the correct answer. The answer which, from the comfort of our pews, can make us feel good about ourselves. But let's actually consider the answer. Because the Pharisee, after all, he does have a lot going for him. In the synagogue and in the temple, he's highly respected and praised by his fellow Jews. He has a good reputation. 
As a Pharisee, he's a learned man. He would have been on the higher end of society. He would have been well-dressed and well-groomed by the standards of that day. In his prayer life, the Pharisee himself, or in his prayer in this parable, the Pharisee says of himself that he's not like other men and that he's not known to be an extortioner or a thief. He's not known to be unjust or an adulterer. He didn't carry that reputation of the tax collector who worked for outsiders to take money from fellow Jews, who usually was known for extorting money from his, his brother Jews with the power of the Roman Empire. On top of that, the Pharisee probably had a very nice home. He had probably had a very nice family, a nice wife. He was a very pious man. He fasted twice a week, he, which, and, which was the tradition of holy men in Israel or in Judah. And he gave tithes, probably 10% of all that he got. He was a well-liked man. And when you see all that the Pharisee has, and everything the Pharisee said was true, when you see all that the Pharisee has and what he does, a good reputation, a good education, he's on the high end of society, he's well-dressed, he's law-abiding, he's one who looks out for his family and the community from outside. He has a nice wife, good kids. He feels good about his pious acts of praying, tithing, and fasting. And we feel good about that too, especially during Lent. So who wouldn't want all that the Pharisee has so that we could feel good about ourselves, so we could thank God for who we are and what we have and what we do that makes us different from those people on the outside, those who are known to steal or maybe even make black donuts in our parking lot (laughs) or people that are adulterers and promote every sexual fetish, or those who are unjust out there, who let out violent criminals the day they're put in prison. How many of us wouldn't want these things that the Pharisee has, and then to look at the news and thank and pray and say along with the Pharisee, thank you, God, that I'm not those people. Thank you that I'm nice. Thank you that I tithe. Thank you that I keep my weight in check, that I keep my health up to look pious to you. And that does seem much more lucrative than the tax collector. Because unlike the Pharisee, his fellow Jews hate the tax collector. He works for the Roman government, but they really only care for him for the money he brings in. He may have a wife and children, but think of the position they'd be in. They would either need to be shameless to be proud of their dad's work that everyone looks down on, or they'd have to downplay their father's work at every Jewish function. Because people knew as a, that tax collector also meant extortioner. It meant that he was a man who stole from his fellow Jews, who took more off the top when he took, the, when he took their taxes. He didn't care about their plight under the Roman government. In a certain way, he was a prostitute. Or at least he was no better than a prostitute. And no one thinks an extortioner to be pious. We certainly don't. If a man steals and extorts money from others... Is that a type of man who fasts, or is he a man who lives lavishly with what he stole? He's not a man that ties, he keeps it for himself. So who would you rather be, the Pharisee or the tax collector? Well, our piety says the tax collector. But when we go out to live our lives, we're not looking at the things of the tax collector. We're looking at the things that the Pharisee has, aren't we? But what about Paul? 
Again, what would he rather be, the Pharisee or the tax collector? Well, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. As we pray here in the temple of God, this is what it is, the body of Christ, that's the temple of God, the two we are. As we pray here, Paul tells us not to look up and cling to all the good things we have in this life. Instead, he tells us the one thing to hold fast to is the gospel that he preached. And to hold fast to this means to receive it into ourselves, to stand in it, to see how we are being saved by it continuously. The Pharisee in the temple, he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other, man, other men. See how I fast and how I tithe. But that's not what Paul says. He says something different here. He tells us to hold fast to the gospel by receiving it unto ourselves. By this, he doesn't mean to just take a copy of the Bible home with you that has the gospel in it. He doesn't mean to just hear it today and then forget about it as you leave church and start work tomorrow. What Paul means is this. To hold fast to the gospel means to hear it with your ears when it is read and preached. To let it enter your ears and then enter your heart. And to meditate on it there and let it work. And as the preached gospel enters your heart, Paul says that then you stand in it. That is, you stand in the gathering of the body of Christ here in the church. And you stand in it when you leave. You stand in it when you leave by living with this word dwelling in your heart when you take it with you, where it's always saving you, where it produces fruit in you to others around you. That's what Paul means by holding fast to the gospel, receiving it in the ears and the heart, standing in it in the gathering every Sunday, and as we live it in our lives every week. And with this gospel always, we're always being saved. Constantly the waters of baptism are saving us. To believe in vain, as Paul talks about, is to block up our ears when it's preached, to harden our hearts when it is heard, and to forsake the gospel as we live our lives so that we fall into those sins of extortion, injustice, in the true sense of injustice, of idolatry, of pride. The Pharisee, for all he gets wrong, he is right about this. Those are sins. Those sins can lead us to believe in vain. And so Paul says here to hold fast to the gospel. Not to hold fast to ourselves in pride like the Pharisee did, but to hold fast to the gospel. To repent and receive the gospel always, and then to always stand in it. But Paul, in saying this, is not instructing us to pray like the Pharisee. Paul would not have us turn inward or look at the things that we have or the reputable things that we do. Instead, this is what Paul says. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So instead of imitating, imitating the Pharisee, Paul tells us to hold to the Gospel. And look what Paul just, just, just said. What do we hold to? Is it complicated? Not really. We confess it every Sunday. He's saying the same words that we just confessed a few minutes ago. And it's very simple. Here's what you hold fast to. Christ crucified and risen according to the scriptures for your sins. 
Paul points us to hold and receive and stand in that which is so simple. Even the youngest child here can understand that Christ died for their sins and rose again from the dead. It's simple, but it is everything. And it comes from outside of us. Christ crucified and risen from the dead. That is everything. So yes, like the Pharisee, we may have a good reputation and honest work. We may be known as fair and faithful and just to our wives and families and communities. We may be known for our piety or how much we tithe. Because everyone knows who has money and who doesn't. Sometimes we know who tithes. But Paul isn't pointing us to any of those things. Those things are fine in and of themselves, but that's not what we hold fast to. None of those are of first importance. Instead, Paul says, hold on to this, which is of the utmost importance, Christ crucified and risen from the dead. This is the most important thing, Paul says. This is the most important thing I received. It is the most important thing you will receive from me. And so Paul points us to focus solely on this. Not the other stuff. The other stuff is fine of themselves. But not if you hold fast to them. This alone is what we hold fast to. And this is so important. This gospel is so important that Paul continues saying of our Lord's resurrection, of this most important thing, Paul says, and that Jesus appeared after his resurrection to Cephas, then to, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then Jesus appeared to James, then to the apostles. What Paul is saying here is that this is the most important thing, Christ crucified and risen. And to show you that it's the most important thing, here's the proof that Christ was risen. Everyone knows that Jesus was crucified. Many people witness that. But there are also people that witness that he has risen. He appeared to Peter, then the twelve. And all but one of the twelve witnessed that they saw Christ risen. And they died doing so. All twelve witnessed that Christ is risen, but all but, all but one of them died with that witness. They died because of that witness. And five hundred disciples after that saw the risen Christ. And at the time of the Corinthians, when Paul wrote this, these Corinthians could go and ask those five hundred what they saw. And they must have done that. Because why would they keep Paul's letter or copy it or spread it around unless they talked to those 500 and confirmed that, yes, they saw Christ risen like Paul said? Paul points to Jesus' brother James as proof of the resurrection. James had made fun of his brother Jesus in the Gospels. And then in James' epistle in the New Testament, he confesses his brother to be the Lord. What would change a brother's opinion like that except seeing Jesus resurrected? All of that is proof of the resurrection. It's so important. The resurrection is so important that Paul says, here's proof that it happened. And as the final bit of proof that it happened, Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Would Paul rather be the Pharisee or the tax collector? Before he saw Jesus risen from the dead, he wanted to be a Pharisee. Those are the things he sought for. It's what he held fast to. And those things were so important to him that he killed the church as a Pharisee because he prayed that prayer of the Pharisee. That's what he held fast to. That's what he received and stood in was that prayer of the Pharisee. But he didn't get to go home justified. All of that changed, however, when he witnessed the risen Lord. 
And after Paul saw the gospel, saw Jesus raised from the dead, he says of himself, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I am the least of the apostles. I am unworthy, the most unworthy. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? Do you hear what he's praying? He's repenting he's the least. He's repenting that he's the most unworthy. He's repenting that he persecuted the church of God. He's praying the prayer of the tax collector with those words. Everyone knew what Paul did. Just like the tax collector, everyone knew what Paul did. Paul, like the tax collector, actually did earn his reputation. But with these words, just like the tax collector, Paul is keeping from lifting his eyes to heaven because of his shame. He's beating his breast with these words and praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Paul follows up those words by saying, and he was merciful to me. He is merciful to me. Would Paul rather be the Pharisee or the tax collector? Well, the, the answer is seen here. He'd rather be the tax collector. Because a tax collector, repentant before the crucified and risen Lord, is a sinner holding fast to the gospel of most importance. So Paul making himself the tax collector, repenting before the Lord. Rather, the risen Lord making him the tax collector that's repentant. Paul now goes home justified. No longer a Pharisee, he goes home justified. By the great, Paul says, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, harder than any of the other apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul gives us, unlike the Pharisee, Paul gives us an example to follow. When we look into the mirror of the commandments, we also see the least of the saints, the most unworthy of the saved. That's not necessarily a description. That's an attitude that we ought to see when we see our sin. We ought to see our sin for what it is and our unworthiness in it. And only then does Christ reveal himself to us as the crucified and risen Lord who forgave us our sins in his mercy, who gives us the gospel we receive in the water and the word, who in our humility justifies us as his word from outside of us is received into our broken hearts as he rises us up as the new men to stand in him and his body, as he rises us up as new men to stand before the world. Now over the past several weeks, we've heard from Paul about how in baptism we are made slaves to righteousness, sons of God, stewards of the mysteries, even stewards of individual gifts to serve one another. Gifts of being parents and children, siblings, friends, brothers in Christ. And just as it is true that Paul is an apostle, so it is true that we are all those things that we talked about in the past several weeks. But why are we slaves to righteousness, sons to God, sons of God, stewards of the mystery, stewards of individual gifts? Why is all that true? Not because of anything in ourselves, but because by the grace of God we are what we are. Save children of God by His mercy. In His mercy, we are all these things, receiving the gospel, standing in the gospel, working hard as slaves and sons and stewards. Though like Paul says, it's not us that get the credit for all that work, but the grace of God in us that accomplishes all those things. We're the tax collectors. 
We're justified by the mercy and grace of God. And to you is the invitation to come and eat, you who have been justified, to take and drink. Because here at this altar is where those who humble themselves will be exalted by the flesh and blood of our Lord. Amen. Now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.
O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, who is always more ready to hear than we to pray, and is wont to give more than either we desire or deserve, pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things whereof our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things which we are not worthy to ask, but through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Almighty and most merciful God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for all your goodness and tender mercies, especially for the gift of your dear Son and for the revelation of your will and grace. And we beseech you so to implant your word in us that, in good and honest hearts, we may keep it and bring forth the fruits of faith by patient continuance and well-doing. Most heartily we beseech you so to rule and govern your church Catholic, with all her pastors and ministers, that we may be preserved in the pure doctrine of your saving word, whereby faith toward you may be strengthened, love and charity increased in us toward all mankind, and your kingdom extended. Send forth laborers into your harvest, and sustain those whom you have sent, that the word of reconciliation may be proclaimed to all people, and the gospel preached in all the world. Grant health and prosperity to all who are in authority, especially to Joseph, our President, the Congress of these United States, Kim, our Governor, the Legislature of this State, and to all our judges and magistrates, and endue them with grace to rule after your good pleasure, to the maintenance of righteousness, and to the hindrance and punishment of wickedness, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. May it please you also to turn the hearts of our enemies and adversaries, that they may cease their enmity and hostilities, and be inclined to walk with us in meekness and in peace. All who are in trouble, want, sickness, anguish of labor, peril of death, or any other adversity, especially those who are in suffering for your name's sake, comfort, O God, with your Holy Spirit, that they may receive and acknowledge their afflictions as the manifestation of your fatherly will. Especially do we pray for those that we name in our hearts at this time. Although we have deserved your righteous wrath and manifold punishments, yet we entreat you, O most merciful Father, remember not the sins of our youth nor our many transgressions, but out of your unspeakable goodness, grace, and mercy, defend us from all harm and danger of body and soul. Preserve us from false and pernicious doctrine, from war and bloodshed, from plague and pestilence, from all calamity by fire and water, from hail and tempest, from failure of harvest and from famine, 
from anguish of heart and despair of your mercy, and from an evil death. And in every time of trouble, show yourself a very present help, the Savior of all men, and especially of them that believe. Cause all needed fruits of the earth to prosper, that we may enjoy them in due season. Give success to the Christian training of the young, to all lawful occupations on land, sea, and air, and to all pure arts and useful knowledge, and crown them with your blessing. Receive, O God, our bodies and souls and all our talents, together with the offerings we bring before you. For by his blood your Son has purchased us to be your own, that we may live under him in his kingdom. As we are strangers and pilgrims on earth, help us by true faith and a godly life to prepare for the world to come, doing the work you have given us to do while it is day, before the night comes when no one can work. And when our last hour shall come, support us by your power and receive us into your everlasting kingdom. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, Almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings, being ordered by thy governance, may be righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Let my mouth be filled with thy praise and with thy honor all the day. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power and grant that this day we fall into no sin neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings, being ordered by thy governance, may be righteous in thy sight. Through the same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. We give thanks unto thee, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, thy dear Son, that thou hast protected us through the night from all danger and harm and we beseech thee to preserve and keep us this day also from all sin and evil, that in all our thoughts, words, and deeds we may serve and please thee. Into thy hands we commend our bodies and our souls and all that is ours. Let thy holy angel have charge concerning us, that the wicked one have no power over us. Amen. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Bless we the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.